Well, let's pray and ask God for his help as we uh, go to our time this morning in the word. Uh, Father, we're so grateful for the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, It's the only thing we have to offer the world, and it's the only thing that we have to offer ourselves. Live on a planet that is plagued with all kinds of trouble. We see it in our news. We see it in our capital cities. We see it in the disasters that take place around the world. We see it in a pandemic. We, we see it in personal grief. We see it in physical suffering. We see it in sickness. We see it in death. We need a hope that goes beyond simply a bank account. We need a hope that goes beyond simply a plan for tomorrow of prosperity. We need a hope that goes beyond the grave. And that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus came not only to save us from death, but to save us from ourselves. And as we've been talking about marriage here in the last month or so, we realize that we who go into marriage take, take with us our own weaknesses, our own failings, our own shortcomings. We bring that to a marriage along with the other person who brings the same thing to that marriage. And it is no wonder that marriage can be such a great challenge. And yet you have given this to us as an amazing, remarkable gift to be soul-satisfying, to to um, fill our lives with joy and delight. And so this morning as we continue our discussion about marriage, may we see... It not only has having an end to serve us well, but having an end to serve you well and to bring you much praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you or your smartphone, you want to turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Our text this morning will be the verses 1 to 6. So since about March, I've been um, doing a sermon series uh, called The Final Countdown, and that's just tracking the, the sermons to the end of my tenure as a preacher this, the end of this year. But within that, we've been doing a lot of mini-sermons, uh, three uh, series, three, four weeks at a time. And uh, we're in the middle of this series on marriage is a gospel marriage different from a Christian one? Or, or maybe the way, uh, another way to put it is, it is when a Christian wife is married to a Christian husband, does that equal a Christian marriage? Or can two people who are Christians be married to each other and, and not really have a Christian marriage? And I think the answer to that question is yes. It's possible for you to be saved, your wife or husband to be saved, and yet not really have a Christian marriage. Because what makes the difference in a Christian marriage or a gospel-shaped marriage, and I think using the um, term gospel-shaped or gospel-driven marriage 
helps us understand the difference. Jesus came and died for us, right? Jesus came and laid down his life for us. And by the same token, in a, in a gospel-shaped marriage, we come to the marriage not just to get out of it what we want, but to lay down our lives for the other person. And so we talked, <clears throat> excuse me, we talked a number of weeks ago uh, to the husbands for two Sundays, and today we're going to talk to the wives. Now, some ground rules. <laughs> husbands, none of this. All right? You let the Holy Spirit do any work that he wants to do in your wife's life, and you simply sit there and rejoice. We've talked many times um, from the front here about a particular commandment that God gives his people in the Bible more than any other one. So you start to Genesis, you get, work your way back to Revelation, and there's one, one thing that God says to us more frequently than he says uh, anything else to us, and it is what? Be not afraid. Be not afraid, fear not, do not be afraid. Over and over and over again through the scriptures, this is a clarion call to God's people. Now, why is that? Well, because that, that is a common experience to all of us, probably more than anything else, we have things that we're afraid of. Now, what I'm afraid of, you might not be afraid of, and what you're afraid of, I might not be afraid of, but all of us have fears. We often think of death, but do you know what's more frightening to most people than death? This. Public speaking. 80% of Americans are more afraid of public speaking than death. You're, you might be afraid of being a victim of a crime, and so you get a handgun and you get a concealed carry permit because you're determined that you're not going to become a victim of a crime. You might be afraid of responsibility like overseeing people. So in your company, even though there's a job opening that includes a, a promotion that includes supervising people, you don't take it, even if you're asked to, because you just, you, you're afraid you might not pull it off. Over the years, I've talked to a number of uh, young couples who are either getting married or, or just were married, and their intent is, is not to have any children. And I ask them why, and they say, well, the world is such a messed up place, we wouldn't dream of bringing children into a place like this. They're afraid of what might happen to a son or a daughter. We could go on and on and on. Some people are so afraid of the future financially that they take two jobs or they take a job they really don't like but that pays a lot of money or they work you know, endless hours because they're just afraid of the old expression, the wolf at the door. Fear not is said precisely because fear is such a common experience in the human experience. And today we talk to wives. The, the main thing that God ends this passage with is wives, do not be afraid. And so we're going to ask God for his help and then we're going to read these verses together. <clears throat> Father, we're so grateful for the word. If we didn't have you speaking to us through it, each of us would be left to our own imagination. Do this, don't do that. What's right for me might be wrong for you. What's right for you might be wrong for me. Everyone, as 
the book of Judges says, doing that which is right in their own eyes. But you have loved us enough that you have spoken to us. And it's been recorded in a book written down by prophets and apostles, 66 books, so that we might not be at a loss for what is right, for what is wrong, that we might not be, just have to guess at who you are, what you're like, and what you call us to. This morning we read the scriptures about wives, and there are people here uh, who are not wives, and yet we think that even for us, there are things that you want to say to us. Maybe there are people, here, the women here who want to be wives, that there's a desire for a future day. I pray that you would speak to them as well as those who are wives uh, this day. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be the one who teaches this morning, that you could speak uh, through me when you can and in spite of me when you must, in order that God's people might be blessed encouraged and challenged for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. First Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning, I should apologize, I didn't warn you, I'm reading out of the ESV today, the text in the NLT just didn't quite do it like I would have hoped, so do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So yes, we're going to talk about the dreaded S word today. Submission. My first point looks at verses 1 and 2. Submission and respect is her or a wife's witness. Submission and respect is her witness. Let's go back to those two verses. Wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not followers of Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when you, they see your respectful and pure conduct. To my knowledge, this is the only place in all of Scripture where we are urged not to give a verbal witness to someone. Did you see that? They may be won without a word by the conduct. And I think one of the things that Peter has in mind here is that um, how, how readily our behavior and our conduct can undermine the witness of our word. Right? How easily it is to throw people off. There's a reason I don't have a bumper sticker on my bumper that says, uh, has a picture of a fish or says I'm a Christian. Do you know why that is? Because I can be a terrible driver. And I don't want people to connect 
me as a Christian with how I drive. Because it's so easy for our behavior to undermine our witness. And, and let's be honest, the world often thinks about Christianity in terms of behavior. They don't understand that we are related to God through faith in Jesus Christ, not through great and perfect behavior. That's why I, I love songs like we just sang here, Christ is mine forevermore. You might say, well, how do you know that? Next week, you might screw up so badly that Christ isn't yours forevermore. I'm like, no, that's not the case. Christ is mine forevermore because of Christ, not because of Keith. And so here there's an admonition for wives to just, just be quiet and focus first on your conduct, your behavior, your relationship to your husband. Be subject to your husband so that if he's not a follower, he may be won, meaning won to Jesus, by your conduct. And he's speaking specifically about your respectful and pure conduct in the context of being subject to your husband where he starts submission and respect wives is your witness to your unbelieving husband uh, let me just take a minute here um, there are people in this congregation who married unbelieving spouses and some of them have come to faith in Christ since and some have it and if you are not yet married let me urge you to think wisely and well about that prospect, that husband-to-be, that wife-to-be. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do yourself a favor and that other person and steer clear. They may be handsome, they may be beautiful, they may have a, a, a lot of other things to bring to the table, but if they do not bring Jesus to the table, I can assure you, I can assure you that your life will be grievous. That doesn't mean you can't have a successful marriage and stay together, but it will be grievous. We live here in Lancaster County, so you know something about mules in the field. It's like putting a Christian together with a non-Christian. It's like two mules pulling a plow. One's going north and one's going south. It doesn't work well. You may be able to survive the marriage. You may be able to stay together, but you have two very different agendas. You have two very different purposes in life. And so think wisely. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, uh, had that classic statement, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, the con in fairness, the context there is not marriage. It doesn't say anything about marriage. But there is no human relationship where we are more tightly yoked with another person than marriage. If it doesn't mean marriage, it doesn't mean anything. It at least means marriage. It probably means some business partnerships as well, some other things it might mean, but at least it means marriage. And Paul's not saying that to, uh, to make your life miserable. You have your eye on this person that you want very much to spend the rest of your life with. He's doing you a big favor by saying, don't go there. So food for, food for thought. Submission and respect is a wife's witness. Secondly, submission is her beauty. Let's go back to verses 3 to 5. 
Do not let your, he's speaking to a, a wife, do not let your adorning um, be external, your beauty be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the, it's tempting to stop right there and say, well, I, I'm dressing and putting jewelry on and, and making my hair up. I'm not, it's not for God. It's for this guy. But that's the whole point of this passage. Wife, woman, first fix your eyes on Jesus. And then everything else falls in line. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. This is how the holy women who hoped in God, in other words, that was their preoccupation, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, there's a, a natural question to be asked about this. Does this mean that God is prohibiting you to go to the hair salon and spend 60 bucks or to buy a $200 dress for your daughter's wedding um, or to wear a diamond engagement ring or diamond earrings? Is that what this means? And, and we, we should read the other passage. It's not the only passage in Scripture where we come across this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, uh, Likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And I think the answer to that question is no. There are some... Uh, that that's not what Peter and Paul are saying. There's certainly some Christian groups, uh, especially some very conservative Pentecostal groups today, who say, no, our women can't wear lipstick, they can't wear makeup, they can't wear jewelry, um, they can't do anything except let their hair just hang down straight or wrap it in a scrunchie or something. Uh, very simple. Here's the interesting thing about that. Look at, look at uh, verse uh, verse. Uh, three or back in first Peter three now he's talking about the braiding of hair don't let your adorning be external the braiding of hair so let's just say for argument you're not allowed to braid your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry so let's say for argument we conclude that this means you can't put on gold jewelry or the clothing you wear he doesn't say don't wear expensive clothing he doesn't say don't wear gaudy clothing or the simply or the clothing you wear in other words, if you're going to take away, <laughs> you're going to take away jewelry, and you're going to take away fancy hairstyles, and you're going to take away clothing, and that's a problem. He's not saying you can't do these things. He's saying this should not be what preoccupies you. This should be not what you. This is not what you spend your time on, spend your money on, uh, your energy on. Because beauty like that is only surface. It's only external. And, and I want to speak to you uh, young women here this morning. If there's any uh, like senior high or junior high or young adult and you're not married. I want to encourage you to value the right things about yourself as a woman. 
That doesn't mean you can't put makeup on. It doesn't mean you can't get a nice hairstyle or, or dress nicely or, or have nice jewelry. But make sure that what you value, the, the, the most important thing about you, that you value the right things about yourself as a woman. Why is it that a man who's nearly 80 years old can look at his wife of 58 years and say to her, Sweetheart, you are absolutely gorgeous and mean it. Whereas a, a 30-year-old man would look at her and say, have you lost your mind? You see, down through 58 years, the externals of the face and the figure and the fashion that first caught his attention have given way to the inner beauty that has surfaced and, 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 and is so uh, central in what he sees that it eclipses the ravages of the decades. And young ladies, that's the kind of man you want. You don't want a guy who, 10 years down the road into marriage, he's still fussing about what you wear and complaining about your hairstyle. And don't misunderstand me. I think it's entirely appropriate to, to try to please your husband. But if that's, if that's what consumes him, he has not seen you in here. And that's what you want. That's what Peter's saying. Look, Make sure you value the right things about yourself as a woman. Beauty's in your spirit, not in your style. It's in your demeanor, not in how you decorate your body. Submission is her beauty. And that brings us to the core of this text. Her obedience to Christ is submission. Both submission to him and submission to her husband. Now, this particular passage that we're looking at this morning is part of a larger section that starts at chapter 2 verse 11 and goes to chapter 3 verse 12 and the overarching point of this um, section is to teach Christians how to live Christianly among non-Christians Peter's trying to teach believers how to live Christianly among non-Christians which they all were now, you and I might live next door. I mean, I have Christians live next door to me. I have Christians that live catty-cornered across from me. I have Christians that live directly across from me. I have Christians that live catty-cornered across this way. Now, I have unbeliever here, unbeliever here, unbeliever here, but I've got a lot of Christians right around me. I remember the story about a guy uh, that complained to a Christian friend. He goes, we're looking about buying this house and he said, I think we're going to buy it. But he said, there's, in this development, there's not a single other Christian, as far as we know, in the development. And his friend said, good grief. And, you know, and he was bemoaning that fact. His friend said, good grief, you mean God's entrusting that entire development to you? <laughs> but if you're in the first century and you're a follower of Jesus, you probably don't have Christian neighbors. You probably don't even have Christian relatives. 
And Peter's teaching these believers, here's how you live Christianly among these non-Christians. And you know what he goes down and covers those verses? He covers all sorts of authorities and that you should submit to them. In chapter 2, verses 11 to, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13 to 17, he talks about submitting to government. Submit to the governor, submit to the president, submit to the king, submit to the uh, district justice, submit to those in, uh, placed in government by God who are over you. From verses 18 to 21 in chapter 2. Submit to masters. This is back when there was slavery. Submit to masters or for our purposes, submit to your employers. Verses 22 to 25. Submit to Christ. Verse 25 says, you were straying like sheep, straying away from the one over you, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls, namely Christ. And then we get to this passage. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, submit to husbands. You are called to submit to government figures. You are called to submit to your employer. You are called to submit to Christ. You are called to submit wife to your husband. Now, who is it who is calling a wife to submit to her husband? There are some wives who have a very, very sour taste in their mouths about this passage and others like it in the New Testament because their husbands continually remind them that it's their job to submit to him. Now men, this is, this is a little tidbit for you. As far as I know, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's your job to make sure your wife submits to you. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you that you are to admonish your wife to submit to you. You are not the one to tell her to submit. God is the one telling her to submit. And she first and foremost obeys God when she submits to you. Now ladies, the man that you are married to probably has a flaw or two. I heard that amen under the breath. And I'm sure you wrestle with, really, I submit to him? He's not all that submittable. And the conversation that almost always flows out of this passage this day these days, is, is this an outdated concept? Well, usually is asked more like this. Isn't this an outdated concept? Maybe. Is it an unpopular concept? You bet. But the real question for us who follow Jesus is this. Is it a disposable concept? In other words, can we dispense with it now that we are modern and sophisticated children of the 21st century? Well, let's think about marriage as a relationship. There's always got to be a leader. 
in any kind of relationship, in any kind of institution, there's always going to be a leader. So we have two people. So what are other options for if, if, if the husband is not a leader to whom the wife should submit to, what are our other options? And there's only two. The first one would be that we're both leaders. We do it 50-50. And contemporary marriages outside of the body of Christ almost all go down this road. That is, we divide everything in half. It may be money. I bring in half the money. You bring in half the money. It's par- maybe parenting. You do half the parenting. I do half the parenting. Chores. You do half the chores. I do half the chores. And on and on. And so in the same way, we kind of approach decision-making and leadership and oversight of our relationship the same way. It's 50-50. You do half, I do half. How is that different from a business deal? Because almost always, if it's 50-50, it goes like this in two people's minds. I'll do my part as long as you do your part. This is a contract. And if she starts slacking off, I do too. If he starts cutting back, I do too. They are not, neither of us are all in. It's really interesting. I have come across countless articles and books by thoroughly secular authors and and, uh, podcasters and writers and bloggers who are arguing, not from a biblical standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, it doesn't work that it can't be a 50-50 arrangement. I, I, there, there's so much about, uh, in, in a marriage, there's so much that doesn't work if we are simply kind of covering our own backside, so to speak. I don't think I've ever used that phrase in a sermon in my life. <laughs> I'm getting to the end. I have to try everything. <laughs> but you've probably heard the, the cliche Um, that men give love to get sex and women give sex to get love. And that's often utilized to talk about dating relationships where there's premarital sex going on. But unfortunately, that shoe too often fits in marriage as well. The, The guy's got the wrong thing in mind exclusively and the woman has the wrong thing in mind exclusively as, as well. But each one ends up not getting what they long for because they're kind of with, withdrawing or withholding what the other person wants because they're not getting what they want. And interestingly enough, the last two years I've been reading more and more, again, in the culture that's saying the number one reason for divorce these days, it's not money problems, it's not sex problems, uh, it's not communication problems. Those are only symptoms of the problem. That the fundamental problem that lies at the root of most divorces is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. And, and the, the root of that problem is that we are so preoccupied with getting what we want that we are not in a a gospel-shaped way giving what we're called to give regardless of what we're getting back. So we have a 
A wife who says, yeah, honey, you can get a new fishing rod as long as I can go to the beach with girlfriends. This is really the kind of thing that we're talking about in a 50-50 relationship. You give half, I give half. Another option would be that she leads. And this is especially tempting where the wife is a better leader overall, period, than the husband is. She's just more competent. This is also a better option where you have a husband who doesn't feel competent, doesn't feel confident to lead out, very insecure. It's just a lot easier to say, sweetheart, it's, it's your ball game. You just tell me what to do. The question for us, though, as believers is, are roles really interchangeable? Is the role of a husband and the role of a wife, can, can they just be flip-flopped? Now, we, we read the other week, Ephesians chapter 5, which talks about the roles. And we know from that passage that human marriage is designed to portray to the world the heavenly marriage, right? So it says, verse 22, Ephesians 5, uh, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. So there's a linkage there between a wife's submission and, and her submission to Christ. And then it says, husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Again, linking Christ's uh, uh, husband's behavior and conduct uh, to Christ's. And so the human marriage is designed to portray the heavenly marriage of Christ's love affair for his church. Now let me ask this question. In the marriage of Christ and the church, are those two roles interchangeable? Yes or no? Yes or no? No, it's not. So then the question becomes, if this is to portray this, how can this go like this? All right. And I, the, other, the other question I think that goes along with this is should leadership in the home, in the marriage, be based on who's qualified, best qualified, or who's authorized? Remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Adam and Eve, you know, Genesis chapter 3. Adam had been called by God in Genesis chapter 2 to, to take care of the garden. He's in charge of the garden Whatever happens in the garden, he's responsible for. He's accountable for. And we go to the next chapter, and there he is at Eve's elbow while this, uh, Satan tempts Eve to eat this fruit that God had said no to. Not only does Adam not speak up, but then when she hands him some fruit, he eats it as well. And what happened after that? Did God go looking for Eve? Who did he go looking for? Adam. Why? I made you responsible in chapter 2, not her. Remember Abraham? We talked about the same deal. Hagar, or Hagar, Sarah says to Abraham, well, it doesn't seem like we're going to have any children. So here, you take Hagar, you sleep with her, and maybe we're going to build a family through her. And Abraham goes, oh, okay. Not acting on his responsibility, not carrying out the accountability 
that God had entrusted to him. See, leadership's not based on who's qualified. You're what, my wife is, in many ways, a far superior leader to me. And she could probably handle money better than I can. Now, we work together on, on handling the money, but I take responsibility for the money. It's on me if we don't have enough, not on her. Leadership is based on who's authorized by God, not who's qualified. Now, so having made my argument, I hope, uh, you might not agree, but I hope I've made my argument that the Bible calls a wife to submit not because she's not qualified to lead him or because she's somehow inferior, but simply because this is what God has ordained. So before I go any further, let me just say what I think submitting doesn't mean for you as a wife. To submit to your husband with all of his flaws doesn't mean that you are his inferior. Galatians 3, uh, 28 says that the ground before the cross is level, men, women, equal. Well, in fact, the next verse here, 1 Peter 3, it says, wives are heirs with you, husband, of the grace of life. And make sure that you treat her well so that your prayers won't be hindered. So, wife, you're not inferior. Wife, you should not be treated as a child rather than a wife. What I mean by that is some men treat their wives, they kind of pat them on the head and say, you know, you go do your domestic chores and I'll take care of everything. No, she's an equal heir uh, 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 with you of God's gift of life and she is an equal partner with you. The fact that you are given the leadership responsibility doesn't take away from her equal partnership. Uh, it, it does not mean that you don't express posi- uh, opinions or positions, wife. It does not mean that you go along with sin. Your submission to your husband never includes going along with sin for you or anyone in the family. It does not mean you need to tolerate abuse. Now, what I'm talking about there is physical abuse. There's, there's no need for you to stay in a home where you're getting, getting beaten up. I don't know where that line might be when it comes to verbal and emotional abuse only. I, I know about that stuff and I know about it well. I just don't know where the line is where God says, you need to get out of this house. I think that God the Holy Spirit has to um, convey that to you. And it does not mean that you as a wife should be deprived of money um, just a, just a personal opinion here. Uh, husband and wife, husbands and wives, you should both have equal access to your money. Husband, if you give your wife like 10 bucks a week, say, here, this is what you get, something's r- way wrong. If you have a budget and you both decide, each of us get 50 bucks or 100 bucks a week, that's one thing. But if he has access to the entire pool and you get this little tiny allowance, something's not right because your money isn't 50-50. And by the way, I'm really nervous about this idea that we have a bunch of different accounts. You know, she has her account, he has his account. Why can't you put it together? It's a married account and you both have access to it. Just food for thought. Uh, 
but husbands, this should be something your wife has equally has access to the money as you do. So these are some things I think submission does not mean. What does it mean then? I'm not going to give you a lot of details this morning except to say this. Submitting to your husband means, begins with you saying, I think, you are my leader. In other words, you're the one that makes your husband the leader. He's not a leader if you don't submit to him. Have you ever heard of a leader that nobody's following? And there's nobody else to follow him. He's only a leader if you make him a leader by following him. And here's what you do. Here's what you communicate to him, whether verbally or through actions or through both. I'm for you, sweetheart. And I support you taking the initiative in our family. That's really what leadership means. It means accountability and initiative. I'm for you and I support you taking the initiative in our family. Now, here's what I always told women in premarital counseling. Making your husband the leader does not mean this. Well, honey, you think this and I think this, but you're the leader, so you make the decision. And then three weeks down the road, it all goes south. And she says, I told you so. That is not submission. That's the letter of the law. That's not the spirit of the law. In fact, if you really want to help your husband become the leader that God called him to be, that's a golden opportunity for you to slip your arm around his shoulders and say, sweetheart, don't worry about it. It's going to turn out just fine. I'm with you. You have no idea, wife, what that will do for your husband. You see, there are many of us in this room, many of us husbands, who are very insecure. I tell my wife, I can do anything if you're behind me. And if you're not, it's really terrifying for me. You have incredible power in your husband's life. You have incredible power to see him become the leader in that home that God has called him to be. In fact, I would go so far as to say, apart from the Holy Spirit, you are the most significant key in seeing him become the man that God has called him to be. I think the question that some wives really want answered is, how can I trust this husband? How can I submit to him when I really don't trust him. I'm really not confident he's going to do what's in the best interest of either our marriage or our home or children. What then? And I think the answer for this is found in verse 6 of our text. And you are her children, meaning Sarah's children, if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Now, if you just took that sentence all by itself out of its context, we don't have a clue what he's talking about. But we do if we go back to the very beginning of this, this um, section, this, this context. And it starts, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The do good that he's referring to there is your submission to your husband. And don't fear 
anything that's frightening about that. In other words, your trust is not in your husband's great leadership gifts. You're not, it's not in his great uh, budgeting gifts. It's not in his great parenting skills. It's not in his, his great capabilities as a worker. Your trust is ultimately in God, and that's what leads you to submit to your husbands. And that's why the, the greatest contribution you can make to your marriage in terms of submitting your, to your husband is to pray and to pray for your husband. God has given you tremendous leverage, power, and influence over your husband's ability to lead, and you should use it for the glory of God and for the good of your marriage. Maybe even pray this prayer. I read this uh, prayer, that, a, and it was just one line. Was that ever powerful? Dear Lord, Make me the biggest cheerleader in my husband's life as I watch and trust you to do your thing in him. Make me the biggest cheerleader in my husband's life as I watch and trust you to do your thing in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every wife here I pray for every prospective wife here that I guess one of the first things I would pray for is that they would uh, look at the world and see the marriages of the world and see the f- see kind of the train wreck that so many of them are to give them some additional assurance that well maybe God Maybe God knows something after all in how he has ordained marriage. And maybe as they reflect on your goodness uh, to them in giving them Christ and giving them Christ without having them make a commitment to him first. While they were yet sinners, Jesus died for them. Maybe seeing in that that they could trust your plan in ordaining that their husband be head of their marriage and head of their home and that she's called to submit to him in a way that maximizes the marriage, helps him, and glorifies you. That would be my prayer, starting point for wives and wives-to-be. And then, secondly, that you would bless and commend a wife's decision to do that and answer her prayers for the marriage to grow and flourish and for her to be cherished by this man and, and for them to find delight and fulfillment together in this relationship in which really both of them have to abandon themselves to Christ. And so that she would see the courage of Christ slay any fear that she has in her life that this submission on her part will somehow bring disaster in their home. 
may she find in the days ahead, not disaster, but great delight in Jesus' name.